0: What we're seeing is a somewhat distorted picture, right, of the world and of Russia's place in the world. And, but, but these imaginings of Russia, they really do function sort of as a mirror that kind of reflect back the different ways in which Germans understand themselves, their hopes and their fears and their desires and such. Hello,
1: and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. I'm pleased to welcome James Castile to the podcast to talk about how German intellectuals imagined Russia as a space for colonization and economic exploitation in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. James Castile is an assistant professor of German, Russian, and Jewish history in the Institute of European, Russian and Eurasian Studies at Carleton University. His research interests include transnational relations between Germany and Russia, nations and empires in Central and Eastern Europe, and Diaspora Cultures and Belonging. He is the author of Russia in the German Global Imaginary, Imperial Visions and Utopian Desires, 1905 to 1941. Here's James Castile. I wanted to start by just asking you about the origins of your book. Uh, How did you come to this topic? I think at the time I was reading a lot of works on German images
0: of America. I think of Molly Nolan wrote a book, uh, Visions of Modernity, that really looked at how the role of America, the German imagination in 1920s. And, and so I kind of initially, I think my question really was sort of like, wow, I've re- read all this stuff. There's a lot of literature out there in German-American relations, but how does Russia look? And what, what do Germans think about Russia? And so that was kind of my initial impulse just to start thinking, well, what, what do Germans actually think about Russia and what role does it play in shaping their imagination to start out and not looking at the 1920s and 30s, but move up beyond that? And so initially, of course, I started looking at travel accounts from the period and, and I expected to hear a lot about the revolution and such and Russia's alternative model of modernity. But then I was really surprised to find this presence of colonial rhetoric and of colonization in some of the accounts. And so that's really and what really started taking me into the direction of thinking about, well, how does Russia fit into German the global order, and, and their perceptions of the world, in Germany thinking about empire. Anyway, I knew there was a lot of counts on the political left, which made sense, but but there's also quite a few travel of the political right, too, who go to Russia and, and observe what's going on in are writing about Russia. So this also made me think about this a broader way.
1: Let's have you talk about some of the Germans' original imaginings of Russia, because you, you briefly go back to Muscovy and provide a, a setup of how they understood it first. And, and like many European intellectuals, Germans associated Muscovy with Oriental despotism. But it, it was also seen as a potential tabla rasa to which to import uh, European ideas. So talk a bit about these original discourses about Russia and the influence of the of Enlightenment thinking in travel accounts and shaping them.
0: Yeah, it was, it was, well, I think it's one thing to, to think about is just when I was writing this is that the German travelers who are writing about Russia, they're always drawing on the longer term cultural repertoire of images of Russia and stereotypes about Russia. That And it's interesting because I think you see that these images and stereotypes, they circulate and they're reappropriated at different moments and given different meanings correspond to different social and political situations. So I, I wanted to go back to- just look and provide some background on just these earlier images and how this influenced uh, German travelers and German thinking about Russia. And, and one thing you, see, what, what you find in really in the early modern period, I mean, already you have imagery of Russia's uh, of uh, the, the Tsarist rule as a form of Oriental despotism in which the the, the subjects of the Tsars are seen as natural slaves of the Tsar. <laughs> And so Russia is really seen as this barbaric and Asiatic interlope into Europe. And I think in many ways, um, a lot of the stereotypes about the Ottoman Turks, you know, the the Turks were at Europe's doors in the early modern period. I mean, these stereotypes kind of carry over to apply to Russia. So there is a lot of already negative discourse that that's there in the early period. I guess Russia was seen as this other who's kind of an outsider of Europe coming in. But then as Russia becomes increasingly part of European politics, the Russian Empire, the Peter Great, begins to move. In Europe more and then you become more active presence in Europe. And this, this course, also occurs during the Enlightenment, of course. And with the Enlightenment, what you really see is this shift where there's developmental models of civilization. So Russia was not just seen as sort of barbaric and Asiatic, the other, but also as in a process of development. So there's this idea that civilizations are over time, right? They're developing into different forms. So this possibility of civilizing Russia and making Russia into something better, I mean, becomes, becomes part of this course. Larry Wolf has, has written the famous book, Invention of Eastern Europe, which I think is really pioneering Western views of the East and such, and really where he makes the argument like saw this invention of Eastern um, So, so what's, what's interesting, I think, is that we have this geographical shift that takes place, too, where civilization is sort of developing in this East-West model. That before, I think civilization is sort of seeing the North-South axis moves East-West framing, where the West is more developed, and as you move further eastward through Eastern Europe, through Russia, to far Asia, then your civilizations are more barbaric and less developed. So, so there is this way in which this resituating of how Europeans are seeing themselves the relation of shapes of these discourses. And of course, this also ties into two, I think, in the 19th century, once you get into the 19th century, but narrowing, it, you see this with Hegel writing his philosophy of history, this idea that history should focus on the contribution of the German-Latin peoples. And so Slavs, which the Slavs are part of, of course, part of European history, but Slavs are sort of excluded from that part of history. So there is this kind of way in which that informs i think the gaze of many intellectuals
1: yeah so here even you have germany on pretty much on the borders of what how we've traditionally defined the west in the last two centuries but here they're separating themselves to make sure that they're you know there seems to be an emergence of a consciousness of the west amongst these thinkers and they want to include themselves and one way to include themselves is to show their difference with the power that's their closest neighbor, which is Russia.
0: Yes, I think there is that aspect
1: to the way this is framed here.
0: And, but also, too, I think when we think about Germany in, in the early modern period, too, remember this is the Holy Roman Empire, the German nation, right? It's, it's you know we have multiple German states, so it's a very different conception of Germany. You know, of, of Germany, there's, there's many different Germanies, right? <laughs> so, so we should keep that in mind when thinking about this. But, but I think it's interesting that just in there is this kind of effort to situate already how to, to imagine Germany as having, you know, your Germans as having this role of, of educating Russia. You know, I think you have Herder, for example.
1: That's actually interesting because I don't know if I'm assuming you're familiar with this book about the United States and the effort, the mission to save Russia by uh, David Forlegson. It's a really great book. It's, it's interesting that there is this discourse of saving Russia, which of course continues to today. is so prevalent in many European theaters.
0: Yes, yes, yes. No, and I think it's, it's again, I think with the Enlightenment is this really this idea of civilizing and improving Russia and that the correct guidance from European intellectuals that Russia can become civilized like any other country. I think it's, it's actually quite interesting that this, this discourse is already there. And of course, and that really shapes, I think, some of the 19th century imaginings where it's much more about these issues of empire, and how Russia fits into this global order that can come to table.
1: And that's the thing. Once Germany consolidates itself as a nation in the late latter half of the 19th century, there seems to be a shift in German discourse in regards to Russia, particularly as Germany's entering the theater of imperial competition with other great powers. Russia is an emerging power itself. And the, the discourse on Russia seems to switch to Russia as a space of colonization. This first starts with Poland, but it extends throughout, throughout into Russia itself. How was Russia imagined in this period as a potential German colony?
0: It's interesting because I think Russia in a way, it, it's not so much that it's, it's seen as a potential colony, I'd say, but actually that it's it's this odd way in which it's Russia, of course, after the Congress of Vienna and the defeat of Napoleon and Napoleonic Wars, was one of the great powers of uh, Europe, right? And it's a major European affairs. So, so the Russian Empire is seen as this powerful force in Europe, in fact. So, so I think there is this kind of interesting way in which Germans are looking at Russia and they're seeing this empire that has this great role in Europe. It's, a, it's an empire that spans continent. It's, it stretches all the way to the Pacific. So, so there is this kind of element of imperial envy in a way. Like they're looking at Russia and saying, wow, this is a, this amazing, Expansive empire, and and at the same time, though, I mean, thinking during this period, I mean, especially in the second half of the 19th century, where after Russia's defeat in the Crimean War in the 1850s, and then German unification and economic development, industrialization, urbanization, you you see this diverging path where Germany suddenly is becoming this more economic power in Europe, much more important this way. And so, their gaze towards Russia is to see is form this informal economic imperialism. Russia, in a way, is seen as the source for agricultural goods and resources. And so, there's also projection that, well, Russia is no longer really such a threat, right, in this military sense, or it's, it's, it shifts in this course that suddenly Germany has its power over shaping this area. So, so I think that's where sort of this colonial gaze in a way comes in. It's more one about informal imperialism.
1: So as more as a potential market?
0: Yeah, I think it's a potential market, but also I think is as, as economic penetration of the country also that it's, there's an element of being able to control those resources and have access to resources, which are, which is very central. So, but I think also what we have, you know, you know I think you mentioned before the discussion about Poland, which of the time, of course, much of Poland is also part of partition between Prussia, Austria and Russia. And, and the, and of course, and so, so this is something I think it's significant. I, I talk about this a bit because I think it's the Germans, the Prussia and later uh, Germany, of course, you know, has experienced ruling over Poles who are within the, the boundaries of Prussia and then the German Empire. And so some scholars like, you know, Kristen Kopp, for example, has written very, um, shown how, for example, in German literature you have these elements of colonial discourse Gustav to Freitag's famous novel David Credit, for example, where you have um, the depictions of Poles are portrayed in terms very similar, you know, racialized terms very similar to what you would find in, in other kind of colonials in this period. So there is this way in which, I mean, there's a lot of debate amongst historians about to what extent we can say the situation of Poles in Germany was colonial I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of debate about that but certainly I think in this terms of just the imaginary, Poles are depicted in the German imaginary, that there are this ways in mean, these colonial tropes inform the way that Germans look at Poland. And so, so this impacts German perceptions of Slavs more generally. So I think that some of these stereotypes do carry over then into how Germans are looking at
1: Russia. Another interesting thing that I, that you have in your book is this tendency of Germans, these German thinkers, to repeatedly compare Russia to America. And, and this, this really comes through in the sense of they, they begin thinking about Siberia as Russia's America. And a, a continuation of, of what you just described is, is Russia as a potential for economic penetration that Siberia itself becomes a space for economic exploitation. Uh, talk about this, this comparison with America and how this informed German thinking about Siberia.
0: Well, I think that's something that really struck me is that this, the way you know, in the German imaginary in the 19th century, you really, especially at the end of the century, you already see this idea of America and Russia being imagined as, you know, the great powers of the future. But I think by the, by the late 19th century and the turn of the 20th century, we see, you know, advances in transportation, you know, advent of railways and communication improvements with the telegraph and such. It really becomes possible to develop the interior of continent. So we see this with the expansion in the wild west and we see this in, in Siberia. And so, and the Russian state, of course, is actively engaged in the process of settling Siberia and, you know, the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway, which is really something that the German observers are, are looking at. So this opens up a lot of possibilities because the, the idea, suddenly, you know, this idea that, okay, all of these resources that have been in the interior of the continent haven't been available in a sense are now suddenly in the reach of, of your markets. So this is, I think, something that begins to, to garner the interest of many German intellectuals and experts on Russia, you know, in, in, in writing about Siberia at the turn of the century. And also, I think, we have to keep in mind, there's also just age of you know, the high imperialism where most of the european powers have their overseas empires which germany the late comer to this game so There was really a sense in which I think there's also this idea that having a continental empire in a way, if if you're an industrialized country, you need access to your resources. That's what the overseas empires provide. But the continental empire is also seen as a more secure way of doing this, which is something that carries over into the name too. Uh, but but I think it's also interesting and, and particularly when I write about the German observers of Siberia, a lot of them are social scientists and economists who are traveling to Siberia. Some travel to Russia on an official mission and there's others who are doing research in Siberia. And such. But some of them are writing about this idea of developmental court discourse that's very central to the way they're thinking about Siberia, that as Siberian markets are integrated into the global economy, that there's also this sort of move from what's called a, a natural, more subsistence economy in German, it's a naturalwirtschaft, to a global economy, a Weltwirtschaft. And this is really seen as a kind of civilizational dynamic. This process of economic expansion, integration into the global economy will lead to the improvements of the peoples living there. So the supposedly backward russian peasants right will be once settled in siberia having access to you know more land um, will turn into independent farmers who will be freeing them from these stereotypes of having a collective herd mentality and so they'll be more integrated modern economy
1: so basically there in germany you get a similar adoption to the discourse of say the british empire or the french empire in a sense of you know imperialism as a civilizing mission
0: yes exactly yeah
1: yeah alongside economic development and exploitation which Goes hand in hand in the developing of these quote unquote native peoples. Of course, as we know, there is a revolution in Russia in 1917 and a new system is established. And this discourse of Russia continues, but of course, now they're dealing with a, in, in some many ways, a different animal. How did German travelers in the interwar period begin to think about or imagine the Soviet Union? What did they observe? What did they take away from it?
0: I think initially, when you're looking, when I started looking at the travel counts to Soviet Union, of course, what I saw very quickly is that the travelers are really trying to figure out and map out this new world around them. The revolution has changed things. Also, the also particularly the Germany Germany's changed status. Right during World War One, had achieved these territorial advances into Eastern Europe. So the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, for example, Germany had under its control territory ranging from the Baltic all the way to Crimea. And you know, the end, you know, this is the beginning in 1918. Of course, by the end of 1918, the war is over. There's a collapse. <laughs> (laughs) You have revolution in Germany itself. So this is a huge transformation. And of course, at the end of the war, Germany also loses its its colonies. So Germany is very much... What you might call a post-imperial nation in the sense that it's moved from imperial to republican governments and, you know, this loss of the colonies in the territory that they occupied in Europe during the war. This has a big impact on how Jews are trying to situate themselves, I think, in this new interwar moment where you also have a revolutionary gun in Soviet Russia. What I find, though, is also that the travelers are really very fascinated by just the Soviet attempts to kind of develop and modernize the Russian empire. What we find is there really is this uh, rhetoric of colonization, this interest and sort of looking at well, what are they, you know, how, what are they doing there, and how are they kind of mobilizing the population? How are they attempting to bring the Russian peasant into modernity? So, so, again, a lot of these discourses kind of continue, in fact, which, which I think is actually quite interesting. And, and I think also too, I think that there is a way in which this is fear. I think that that Germans have too that comes. Than many of these accounts. I um, mean, obviously, of course, again, there's there's some difference from the left and more to the right, and you know, not all of them are the same. Of I course, I don't want to say that, but but I think there is a general sense that this fear that Germany's situation after the war is not a good one, and that Germans you know, are in danger of being colonized by the West or colonized by the by the Soviets in the East, and so there's this kind of fears anxiety that's driving I think their interest, and you really see this I think in, in reading some of these accounts.
1: And that's actually interesting because this goes into how did this discourse this Discourse of colonization this discourse of Germany as a defeated nation vis-a-vis Russia and the insecurity that is pervasive, I think, through German society in the 1920s. How does this feed into how the Nazis understand Russia, particularly as, again, as a potential colony in, in very stark terms, as a means to achieve economic autarky? You
0: know, I think it's it's interesting because, again, again I have a chapter that looks at Siberia, again, in the interwar period. Um, and, the, and what's interesting is that the beginning of, the interwar period, you, you have very similar discourse that you had at the turn of the century where these litanies about the cornucopias of mineral and natural resources that are there in Siberia just lying over for development. But I think there really is this difference that this changed international climate The raw materials and such, it becomes much more essential for Germany to have these access to raw materials. And this seems like the only place in the world we can get them, right? So so it it takes on a much greater significance, again, already, I mean, before the Nazis come the power, and you already have this interest in in Siberia. But I think what's also going on, I think, is also with the five years plans in in the Soviet Union under Stalin, have this type of development, the industrialization of the Soviet Union. Siberia, of course, is, is one of the, you know, sites of this industrialization. And so you have German observers looking at this. And that this is, and this is where I find interesting is that, you know, the, the Soviets are actively showing that in their propaganda and such that they are modernizing Siberia. And of course, there is, it. but the German observers really see this as an effort, really, for the Soviets to create a continental archarchy in the continent. You know, once the Nazis come to power, face of it, I mean, the Nazis, you know, Hitler, for example, doesn't really see the Russians as capable as having a great empire and great civilization, right? It's really, they, I mean, he really doesn't think the Slavs are able to do this. He has his whole conspiracy, how much of the development of Russian history was the product of Nordic blood, and that the Jews have somehow supposedly undermined this. And so so he has his kind of conspiratorial views and kind of underestimates Russia. But I think what's interesting is some of these intellectuals who are looking at Siberia, recognize, in fact, that, that in the 1930s as they start writing about what the Soviets are doing with the Five Years Plans, they, they really see them as having succeeded in creating this space that's Tarkic, and that means also that it's in that it would be much more difficult for foreign armies to take it over. So, in a way, it's it's almost this projection, in fact, of the German fears of what happened during World War I, where Germany was cut off with the blockade, the British blockade from its resources, and they really had to work to extract as much as possible from the economy. So, some of the military service, like you know, Oskar von Mutermeier, is a really interesting figure who's a geographer who's helps make the maps that the germans use for the invasion in fact but is writing about these developments and saying you know the the soviets have created this autarkic space and they're moving in this direction and and in a way there's a Bit of envy here, sort of thinking, well, you know, what if, what if we could do this too? You know, <laughs> I think that they, they also have a bit of element of that, that, that's, that's shaping their discourse. But
1: yeah, you know, and what's also interesting, of course, is, is throughout all of this discourse and, and imagining Russia from uh, Germans, you also have ethnic Germans living in Russia and have been living there since the 18th century. How were they imagined and how were they included in the larger pan German nation in the interwar period?
0: Yes. Well, I think it's, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of probably, you know, listeners of the podcast may not know to, to what extent the, just that in the Russian Empire and then later the Soviet Union, that there, there were ethnic German populations. Most of them had settled. Many were invited under Catherine the Great in the 18th century and later and later under later Tsars um, in the 19th century and such. To come and settle and create farming communities and such. And of course, in many cases, many of them are Mennonites or in some cases, Catholics and Protestants, but there's sort of the mixture of religious affiliations. But, you know, but many of them maintain communities and were German-speaking well into the 20th century. And even under the Soviets, there was a vulgar German Soviet Republic. But the situation of Germans in Russia, of course, I think the World War One, the Russian Revolution really changed their situation because... These are populations that had really, for the most part, didn't have strong ties to Germany, some exceptions like the Baltic Germans, which I talked a bit about earlier, how some Baltic Germans had already emigrated to Germany before the war, and these actually became intellectuals who were very influential in shaping Russian studies in, in Germany. Uh, turn of the century. You know, so, so the war and revolution is really an up- upheaval because, of course, under the Russian Empire, the, the German populations were viewed as being suspect, as being sort of a fifth column for Germany. This treatment, obviously, and then with the revolution, which also hit many of the farming communities, they end up in the middle of the Russian Civil War with battles the whites and the reds, which has a huge impact on these communities. And so, so there are, So, so some Russian Germans emigrate from the after the Bolshevik Revolution. So, what's interesting is you have this diaspora politics that's taking place in Germany of a Russian German diaspora. You know, some from different communities in Russia, so the Volga Germans, Black Sea Germans, Umiyan Germans, Baltic Germans from the Russian Empire, and they so they settle in Germany. They have they form associations, but they work with German nationalist associations, kind of advocate on behalf of ethnic Germans in, in Russia, and this is. Also, I think, happening at a moment when, with the remapping of the political order that takes place after the war, where suddenly Habsburg Empire, the Romanov Empire, are all carved up into nation-states throughout Eastern Europe. So Poland's reappears in the map, much to the Germans' <laughs> chagrin, um, the Baltic states and such. Um, so so, so there's also ethnic German minorities in these states, too, and a lot of concern, I think, in, in the German public sphere about these irredentism and such. So in this context, then, I think you really see kind of particular moments where the Russian Germans really come to the attention of the German public. And that's when the Russian famine in 21 was this large effort uh, is organized. And, but also I think in with a, a number of mostly Mennonites gathered before Moscow to demand the right to emigrate because conditions of collectivization were so bad.
1: Yeah, there's a famine in the Volga region in the 30s.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: And so this also gets the attention
0: in Germany and, 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 but increasingly what you see is just that the a strategy trying to present the Germans in Russia as fellow Germans who are also suffering much like Germans in Germany had during the war and see them as part of a larger national community. So there is this way in which that kind of efforts to aid the Germans also is tied into this German discourse of empire, because I think also you see that the, the Germans in Russia are presented in a lot of the texts that you see in the 1920s as these colonial pioneers who'd helped develop the Russian empire. And had contributed to a broader German civilizing mission. And of course, also, I think there's also often comments about the clear divide between German villages and the Russian ones. Their and so
1: yeah, I was wondering about that. Did they, with the, with the development of racial theory, was there a, a sense that perhaps these Germans living in Russia were infected by Russian culture or were they symbols of the defense of German culture within a different environment.
0: I think in most of the texts I'm looking at, like I think they're really celebrated as this defending German culture. These outposts of Germans who are showing how productive German work and German labor be, and so they're really claimed in this way. I mean, obviously, I think when during the First World War and then after the war, there's there's German emigrants to Germany, and then then of course there, there is some suspicion as oh, well, are they Bolsheviks that are trying to infiltrate the country? so there is some concerns about that. I think that that goes on by by officials, but I think generally speaking, the discourse, the public this scores that you you see It's really this image of them as these colonizers and having preserved their german against these odds and hostile populations. So it is this very internally framed discourse around them. And of course, as we see later, once in the 1930s, when the Nazis come to power, I mean, the, the Nazis also build on this discourse about this the, the situation in Germany's abroad. This plays a very large role in sort of their public presentation of in the outbreak of World War II. I mean, Sudetenland, right, in the role of that, the crisis, and, and also the Nazi invasion of Poland, you know, they're, they're really themselves as liberating ethnic Germans, you know, who are being persecuted by Poles. Um, so there's a very similar dynamic, I think, in, in the German invasion of, of Russia, where ethnic Germans are presented as sort of these victims of Bolshevik crimes, which, of course, in the Nazi nation are ultimately the victimized, of course, is portrayed as a Jew. So, so there is this kind of inversion of reality, I think, that shapes the Nazi imaginary which this.
1: And what about racial theory? I mean, racial theory really develops, you know, in the in the latter parts of the 19th century. It really takes hold amongst many intellectuals, Intellectuals, particularly after Darwin's publication of, of The Origins of Species, how did Germans understand Russians ethnically or racially? I mean, because here you have these two competing discourses. On the one hand, Russia is a place that can be saved and developed and modernized so they have a potential of becoming europeans and then you have this other discourse of russia as a place for exploitation and economic penetration and as a colony and as part of you know with the particularly with the nazis as part of a greater german continental empire so how were they how were russians understood in these more racial terms
0: yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think I think here, I think it's important to keep in mind too that when we think about the populations of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. Obviously, these are these are both multi-ethnic empires, and you know, and so they are, obviously there's lots of ethnic, religious, cultural differences within the population, and so, you know, and of course also this the whole history of Russian Soviet nationalities policies that at different moments support particular nationalism and such. So one thing is that German observers often speak about the Russians to account, but they don't always acknowledge that diversity. So I think you know, in a way, I think it's, it's it's almost this assumption that you get from reading school textbooks that the French live in France, the Germans in Germany, the Russians in Russia. So this kind of national framing to the way they think about this—that that's—and and so so the Russians in a way are both are, are sometimes celebrated as being closer to nature, more authentic, more spiritual. So there is a very more positive side in a way. I guess they're kind of romanticized or idealized, I and mean, you see this a bit with August von Haxhausen's you know romanticization of the peasant communes in the nineteenth century but also amongst German socialists who see them as a form of resistance against the intrusion of capitalism. But I think my general sense is that is this perception of Slavs or peasants as backward. And this also kind of the, the fact that, you know, Russia as in the Russian Empire and that the, later the Soviet Union has these populations who are seen as Asiatic in the, in the German terms. This sense of backwardness and lack of civilizations really somehow makes it possible to reconcile that the violence and the coercion that, that the Soviet state employs against the population. So it somehow makes it understand and I think I found that in many accounts of like this kind of idea of somehow the situation of the Russian of the Russian population since their status and civilization, like different means are needed in this context. And so, so that's kind of a sense that I that I find. I think this also works in a way in this odd way to distance when, when travelers are kind of going to the Soviet Union to say, well, the Soviet developments, is you know, the way the Soviets are engaged in collectivization and these Soviet all the policies they institute that these are appropriate for the peoples of Russia, but they're not appropriate for European rights. So. In a way, it does kind of reinscribe
1: this divide. Your book goes. Up to 1941. So this makes me wonder. Okay, so what is the legacy of this discourse? Do you did was there a break in 19, particularly after the war, or or how does these German imaginings from the late 19th century and early first half of the 20th century inform how Germans perhaps understand Russia today?
0: I think I think certainly we have to keep in mind that obviously the war in the Soviet Union, of course, is one that's in which you know most of the Nazi crimes take place, and it is one where the civilian population of Soviet Union are the largest victims of the war and of course also when the Holocaust unfolds in the occupied Soviet Union. Clearly, I mean this is this legacy of the war. And then later the the Allied defeat of of, of Germany, of course, parts of Germany come under Soviet occupation. I mean it's the Red Army that defeats the Wehrmacht. So so this I think really kind of changes the whole picture. And so Germany in the postwar period, there's certainly I think elements of the discourse and, the, you know, the way, you know, the Nazis portray communism and such, I think that that still informs the Cold War period and, and the Federal Republic of Germany. But, but I think really there's a lot of changes that take place. By the time you get to Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik in the 60s and 1970s, you, you have a much more push for dialogue and openness that breaks apart this Cold War divide, which I think still influences German policies today. But what really changes then is I think this is imperial framing that Russia's view of this. We live in a world of empires and we need to assert ourselves in this, find a place for Germany as sort of empires. Well, after the war, I think it's a kind of a different discourse. It's really much more an acceptance of the position of Germany in Europe and a very different, you, know, you see this in, I think, you know, the developments that lead to the European economic community, the EU, this attempt to negotiate with neighboring states and work out, find common interests and work through diplomacy to achieve things that before, I think, where force would be used in the past. One thing that really struck me in the, in the 1990s, you know, you had the dissolution of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe was suddenly no longer under the Soviet yoke. A lot of the discourse about, as you know, many of the Eastern European countries are transitioning to democracy, um, this whole discourse, scholarly discourse of, of transition, that's one thing that struck me as actually quite similar, the discourse. I was reading about you know these observers of of Siberia, for example. There was actually was some of the, in some cases, you could take quotations from some, some of these scholars writing it up to the beginning of the 20th century, and it would be almost identical to the language being employed. So there are elements in which I think these discourses still continue to to shape views of, of Russia. And I think too, I think also, I think more recently, of course, this attempt to Germany's always had fairly good relations with Russia, but I think the Ukraine crisis recently has obviously made that much more difficult. I mean, I think that's made it much more difficult to engage in this foreign policy dialogue and negotiation. And rather than trying to not leave Russian isolation, but I think one thing, too, that's in contemporary Germany, which you keep in mind, too, is that Germany is still very well placed, I think, to be a mediator for understanding Russia, because particularly since with the, you know, since the end of the Soviet Union in 1991, there's a millions of people from the former Soviet Union, of course, have migrated to Germany. And the majorities of these were actually, um, ethnic German spateausch, spät- these, the late settlers, it's a German term, M- mostly, so, so descendants of ethnic German populations in the Soviet. Many of them, of course, were not German speaking because they were German nationality was, was marked. In their Soviet passport. So the majority of them are these ethnic German uh, populations who, who moved to Germany. Um, some of them, of course, also intermarried with, with other peoples in the, in the Soviet Union. So not all of them, of course, German background. But also, of course, also a large number of Jews in the former Soviet Union really played a very important revitalizing Jewish communities. And so so these migrants have maintained ties to countries of origin. You know, they have knowledge of the language and culture. So they're really a strong resource, in fact, for Germany to draw on to maintain its expertise in this region of the world.
1: And, and finally, your book is in many ways about how a nation understands itself through the other, right? And and we've mentioned, you've mentioned, and I've mentioned a couple of books that do a similar analysis. So at the end, what, what do you want your readers to learn about Germany through the Russian other, and perhaps Russia through German imagining? Well, in some ways, I, I don't, I don't know if the reader will learn so much about Russia from studying German imaginings of the country in a way. Okay. I mean, I think this is important to say, perhaps, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, no, because I think, I think in a way, because, because what we're seeing in the book is kind of a somewhat distorted picture, right, of the world and of Russia's place in the world. and. But, but these imaginings of Russia, they really do function sort of as a mirror that kind of reflect back the different ways in which Germans understand themselves, their hopes and their fears and their desires and such. And, and so, so that I think, I think in some ways that's that why that's so much to concern and, and during this period that I'm looking at in the book is really about how Germany should find a place for itself you know, in empires. But I think, I think the reader would get some understanding of why, you know, Germans Found Russia so in, in, in significant in the imagination twentieth century. Certainly, also why Germany, because this is also a country. where you know, Germany was waged two two world wars against, and this this plays a very significant role here. So I think that this, this certainly provides some insight in why that was the case. But also, too, I think more generally, also what we see in this case is not unique to Germany in some respects in that, you know, every nation has its own. You know, all nations kind of see themselves as situated in a wider and they try to make sense of that in different ways. And sometimes those perceptions of the world are not, don't always correspond to the reality or and such. And so, so I also think it's important to reflect on how sometimes what we. Think of as our objective of knowledge of the world is is sometimes can be shaped by ideologies, prejudices, other interests. So so I'm hoping that a reader having gone through this journey that explores the German case might also be able to reflect on how their own society thinks about engaging with the because I think we live in a globalized world and we don't really need to be putting up walls against our neighbors, but really engaging in dire attempts to understand the So, In some sense, I hope that that we encourage to do this.
1: That was James Castile, Assistant Professor of German, Russian, and Jewish History in the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at Carleton University. He is the author of Russia in the German Global Imaginary. Imperial Visions and Utopian Desires, 1905-1941. I'm your host, Sean Gillery and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. I've also started a weekly email newsletter, the SRB Weekly Dispatch, which rewinds the news week in Russia. You can subscribe to it at at seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.